0: This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week I was talking about Hill Public Schools in India. You remember one of. The basic points I made is that those one of those earliest public schools in Indian Hills was established and several of them, as a matter of fact, were established as a, a sort of orphanage or asylum for the children of uh, the British soldiers stranded in India for lack of a better quality education as a replacement of sorts of the great boarding schools in England. Soldiers is going to be the common thread between yesterday, that is the last podcast, and today, that is this week's podcast. I'll be talking today about um, shale shock. Shale shock has become one of the most common phrases used in description of military experience in the First World War. The South committee of 1920 attempted to define it as, and I quote, an emotional shock, either acute in men with a neuropathic disposition or developing as a result of prolonged strain or terrifying experience, the final breakdown being sometimes brought about by relatively trivial cause or nervous and mental exhaustion, the result of prolonged strain or hardship, unquote. The term was first used in academic circles in an article in the journal Lancet in February 1915. It was um, the invention of Charles Mayer's, or Myers who had been trained in psychology and later was co-opted into the Royal Army Medical Corps, or RAMC, to act as consulting psychologists to the army in France during the First World War, and I shall shortly come to that. Typically, Myers distrusted and disliked the military medical men. He regarded them as hostile to research and mental breakdown. Be that as it may, he quickly became experienced in the treatment of shell shock. By July 1916, he had seen over 2,000 cases and was soon arguing a case for specialized hospitals. He was quick to admit that shell shock was a misleading term, as soldiers could suffer mental breakdown without any physical proximity to bursting shells, to the stress of battle alone. Myers introduced, um, of course, uh, he could not do without it. He introduced class analysis into his diagnosis. Officers suffered neurasthenia, while ordinary soldiers experienced hysteria or trauma. Here's what he had to say, and I quote, the forces of education, Tradition and example make for greater self-control in the case of the officer. He, moreover, is busy throughout a bombardment, issuing orders and subject to worry about his responsibilities, whereas his men can do nothing during the shelling, but watch and wait until the order is received for an advance. So, Myers believed that neurasthenia in officers was a mental and nervous disorder due to exhaustion, creating acute irritability, loss of confidence, depression, headache, giddiness, insomnia, nightmares, loss of appetite, loss of memory, loss of concentration, and finally, paranoia. Hysteria in privates or inferior ranked soldiers was unconscious and led to tics, tremors, sweating, stammering, mutism, deafness, blindness, amnesia, paralysis, muscular contractions, difficulty in walking and inability to perform routine tasks. Well, there were other symptoms too Men were haunted by a past they could not forget, by memories they did not want to remember but which intruded both into their waking and sleeping hours. Some became important, some soiled themselves. The age group most vulnerable to shell shock was between 18 and 25. To be frank, the early medical attitudes, and it happened especially because um, it was manifest during a war. So the medical attitudes um, necessarily, almost invariably was hostile. There was a the constant suspicion of malingering and of letting down the comrades. Well, there was sympathy with military ordeals, that military ordeals could create such symptoms. There were also contempt, mostly contempt, for the lack of willpower and self-control. What these men needed, some of those doctors said, was stoutness of heart. The most reactionary witness was Lieutenant Colonel Viscount Gott, who bluntly said that shock, and I quote, must be regarded as a form of disgrace to the soldier," unquote. The sheer scale of psychological problems was very disturbing for the senior officials. Mental issues uh, were first observed during the retreat from Mons in 1914, but they escalated in later campaigns. So, uh, there was Sir John Colley, who was then considered an expert on malingering, made a credible estimate that two lakh soldiers were discharged from active service due to mental problems. In some areas, 40% of all casualties were due to nervous disorder. On the Somme, from July to December 1916, 16,000 cases of shell shock occurred in the British Army alone. By 1918, the government was providing medical care and pensions for over 4 lakh disabled soldiers and sailors. Medical provisions were um, revolutionized. By 1920, 113 hospitals with 1,800, uh, I'm sorry, 18,600 beds were supplemented by 319 special surgical clinics, 36-year clinics, 24 eye clinics, and 19 heart centers, and 48 mental hospitals to deal with the most severely disabled. By the end of the war, 80,000 cases of shale shock had been treated at RAMC medical units and 30,000 troops were diagnosed with nervous trauma. They had been evacuated to British hospitals. Now, many factors really came together in the concerns for fitness uh, of the British army or in the hostility of the medical establishment towards these soldiers. Historically, one in six volunteers for the Boer War were rejected on grounds of poor physical fitness. There was uh, an interdepartmental committee on physical deterioration set up in 1904. It was to investigate the health and physics of the people and to make recommendations on the education and welfare of children. So there was a concern in England since then that uh, the great imperial rest of the Britons had been declining in valor and moral strength. So um, Churchill in 1912 said, and I quote, The multiplication of feeble-minded was a terrible danger to the race, and I unquote. So there was an ongoing concern and anxiety among the British about uh, what they suspected was a worsening state of moral strength in the country and especially among the soldiers. So, there was this anxiety that had already persisted from long before the war. And it bred and fed the anxiety to suppress the term shale shock. So, uh, new acronyms were invented. Kesis must now be described as NYDN, not yet diagnosed nervous. Now, They could not be treated until their commanding officers authorized it, despite the need for urgency and speed. There was a distinction, a distinction really had to be made between commotional and emotional disturbance. The former, or commotional disturbance, was to be an actual physical shock as a consequence of the war. The latter, or emotional disturbance referred to psychological strains without any actual physical uh, injury. Shell shock was stigmatized as the skeptical RAMC took charge in the battle against malingerers. They argued that in many cases the patient had not really been buried alive, but only thought they had a distinction not always understood by the victim. Most seriously, deserters were still being shot without medical examination. After the Somme, officers complained that many of their men were utterly useless, degenerate, a danger to their comrades, their battalion and their brigade. Lord Moran who was later to be Churchill's doctor, said this, and I quote, Some conscripts were plainly worthless fellows without shame, the worst produce of the towns, unquote. A staff officer was reported as saying, and I quote, If a man lets his comrades down, he ought to be shot. If he's a loony, so much the better. What's the good of loonies in the army anyway? unquote. So um, I'll talk now about um, a victim in some detail. Private Ivor Bertie Gurney was celebrated by his contemporaries for his musical compositions but is now well known as a talented poet of the Great War and the Cotswold countryside. His work reveals the mentality of the private's war a rare glimpse in war records, which is uh, otherwise dominated by officers and politicians. He came from a humble background and must have been a brilliant student. He attended the King's School Gloucester and won a choral scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music. In London, Gurney was regarded as something of an eccentric with nervous problems. He was rejected by the army in 1914 for defective eyesight. He hoped that an outdoor life would improve his nervous health and he successfully enlisted again in February 1915 and he served in France from May 1916. He was in many ways a chaotic soldier, rebelling against the tedious drill of brass cleaning and button polishing for he was posted to the signaler's corpse and later to the machine gun corpse. When his slovenliness was criticized, he was defended by his surgeon as a good man who was extremely cool under shell fire. Gurney had an exact, precise vocabulary and a stubbornly realistic attitude to the war. He was never impressed by tales of glory and even less by vainglory. He did find solace in the courage and humor of his companions, simply praising them for paying the price that must be paid. He also appreciated the people and the landscape of France. The titles of his poems and his first lines usually set the exact tone for his themes. He was a well-read man. His early work is a reaction against the patriotic fervour of many other contemporary poets. He was devastatingly honest, even admitting to disobeying orders, which could have led to a court martial. Here's one of his uh, most remarkable poems about the state of mind of a soldier going into the trenches. It's called Ballad of the Three Spectres. And I start. As I went up by ovilers in mud and water cold to the knee, there went three jeering, fleering spectres that walked abreast and talked to me. The first said, here's a right brave soldier that walks the dark unfearingly. Soon he'll come back on a fine stretcher and laughing at a nice blighty. The second, read his face, old comrade. No kind of lucky chance, I see. One day he'll freeze in mud to the marrow, then look his last on Picardy. The bitter, the word of this first twin, curses the third spat venomously. He'll stay untouched till the war's last dawning, then leave one hour of agony. Liars the first two were, behold me, at sloping arms by one till three, waiting the time I shall discover where the third spoke verily. Sadly, Gurney had anticipated his own fate in this poem, Twice Wounded in 1917, he spent time in various military hospitals in England. He was discharged from army in October 1918 and returned to the Royal College of Music, but could not concentrate. He returned to Gloucester with a small disability pension, a very small pension indeed, and in 1922, he was diagnosed as a suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. His brother, Ronald, had little patience with uh, or understanding of his problems and committed him to to Barnwood House, an expensive private asylum on the outskirts of Gloucester. Gurney hated the regime there, feeling that he was virtually in prison. Worries about his sanity grew when he revealed that he talked with Beethoven, Gurney felt that his service in the army deserved reward and he was bitter when his request for a full pension in October 1918 was denied on the ground that his condition had been aggravated but not caused by the war. He was denied the material independence, in effect, to write music and verse because he had claimed, untruthfully, that his state was due to shell shock. Instead, he was subject to electrical treatment. In March 1925, he wrote from Dartford Mental Hospital. The pain of a 12-hour day in a ward is great. In 1917, Myers had been asked to find out how treatment for shale shock in England was progressing. By April 1916, more than half of the 24,000 cases that had been sent back had ended up in general military hospitals, with no specialist staff and with their notes lost. The cure for rankers or or inferior ranked soldiers such as uh, privates like Gurney was discipline, punishment, and electricity. For officers, it was therapy, discussion, and hypnosis. I now mention some detail about this treatment. Lewis Yaland, a Canadian psychologist who came to England in 1916 and became a a resident medical officer at the National Hospital in London, epitomized the tough treatment of shell shock and sometimes his methods verged on torture. And here's a case study. Yellen was treating a 24-year-old private for mutism. And I quote, the man took part in the Mons Retreat, the Battle of Merni, the Battle of Aisne, and the First and Second Battle of Ypres. He also fought at Hill 60, New Chapel, Laos, and Armentiers. In April 1916, he was sent to Salonika, and three months later, while attending to his horses, fell down unconscious, he says, on account of intense heat. For five days he remained unconscious, and on waking he shook all over and could not speak. When I saw him nine months later, he was mute. Many attempts have been made to cure him. He had been strapped down in a chair for 20 minutes at a time. When strong electricity was applied to his neck and throat, lighted cigarette ends had been applied to the tip of his tongue and hot plates had been applied to the back of his mouth, but all these methods proved to be unsuccessful in restoring his voice. I talked to him sternly about his duty and his family. In the electrical room, lights were turned out and doors locked. The patient was told that he would not leave the room until he was cured, and strong currents were applied for long periods of continuous treatment until he was permanently cured. Now, Yalin cites many other comparable cases, emphasizing his frankness and the direct way he talked to his patients. By 1920, over 20 institutions in England were dedicated to the treatment of patients with mental issues and war neurosis. Hysteria among the rank and file challenged the ideals of male virility and accepted ideas of masculinity were tainted by suspicions of homosexuality and signs of effeminacy. Public schools ideals of muscular Christianity, something I spoke about in the second last podcast, the stiff upper lip, self-control, willpower in the leadership, and self-restraint were weakened as female hysteria spread to men in a mass retreat from battle. There was this concern that the British men were turning into women. Tradition therefore led to harsh treatment, perfunctory care, and eventual release into a civilian life of frustration and futility. The use of the term shell shock therefore had to be given up in 1922 by medical experts. But it was too popular to be removed from public use. Shell shock in the Great War occurred on such a massive scale that it appeared to be a new phenomenon. Both medical and military attitudes were ambiguous and treatment was haphazard inefficient recruiting was blamed on um, the scale of shell shock, complex class and gender issues were involved as we heard, psychiatric techniques developed um, and hopefully more enlightened and liberal views eventually gained weight. It was hoped that improved training might lessen the rate of breakdown yet. The hidebound suspicion and condemnation of malingering persisted especially towards the ordinary soldiers. Officers were treated with greater deference and in general, they received more sympathetic therapy. Eventually, neutral terms such as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder were used after 1945. Another variant is combat stress disorder or reaction. Whatever the name, it seems that fewer than 20% of the soldiers who were diagnosed during and in the aftermath of the First World War were able to return to normal lives. And that, I suppose, is enough to silence me. I'll be back with another episode of History Chatter next week. This is Onirban signing off. Do remember to listen to history chatter and send us your feedback in your favorite podcast spring applications see you